0: You're listening to Hardwired with Jeff Wickwire. Here's what's coming up in today's edition. God took this fisherman, John,
1: along with Peter and the others, and turned them into intellectual, spiritual giants. Seeing things, writing things, revelatory things that, to this day, we can't fully understand. First thing he sees is the risen Savior, He sees the risen Savior, who looked nothing like the Jesus He had known on earth. No, this is a very different Jesus.
0: In your walk with Christ, do you know the power that you have through the cross? Do you know that when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just for a cool story? In today's message, Pastor Jeff wants you to know that you have unlimited power through God's perfect grace. When you let Him into your heart, You inherited His power from defeating death. Don't take this potential for granted and make a difference in the lives of others around. Stop being stagnant and be a vessel for God's love. Well, let's join Pastor Jeff in the book of Revelation chapter 1 as he begins his message, The Loveless Church.
1: Now, the incredible book of Revelation was delivered to the beloved disciple John. I call him beloved because remember, he even called himself in his own gospel the disciple that Jesus loved. All right? So it's to this, this man, John, Jesus chose to give this incredible revelation. Now, when he was 92 for preaching Jesus, he got banished to a little island called Patmos. Can you imagine being uprooted and moved to some desolate island uh, when you're 92? Somebody say, I can't do it at 52, right? But 92. And for preaching Jesus, he is exiled to this island. The island was about six by 10 miles, a little bit bigger than downtown Fort Worth. That's about it. There were no trees. There was no greenery. It was an island known for just being rocks. There was nothing beautiful about it. It sure wasn't a place where you would choose to go for a vacation. The Isle of Patmos. During this time, the early church that he helped birth was going through an extremely difficult time. Incredible persecution. Martyrdom happening all the time. You didn't know if you were going to have your loved ones the next day. Uh, people being killed for sharing Christ, for even identifying with Christ, families being separated, people being in prison, losing your reputation, losing your home, losing everything you held near and dear for the name of Christ. It was a very difficult time in church history. The Roman government that they were in was godless, and Rome was infested with a multitude of anti-Christian religions and mainly the worship of a pantheon of mythical, fake, false, phony gods that the Romans just borrowed from the Greeks. The Greek Zeus, their main God, became the Roman Jupiter, their main God. But they were all fake and phony. They weren't real, they weren't genuine, they were false. But these people, and we gotta understand this, they believed they were real. There was a God for everything, God for the weather, God for uh, fertility, a God. When, when it thundered and lightning, they, they, they said, well, there's Zeus, he's upset. They believed this, and that's the Rome that the Christian church was birthed in. And when they didn't worship their gods, you were persecuted for it. If you said Jesus was God, you were persecuted for it because they wanted you, they forced you to worship their God, their fake gods. So it was a time of great distress for God's people. So one reason that God gave John the revelation was to comfort and assure the church that even though they were going through hell on earth, and they were, God was still in control. Still in control. And guess what, everybody? Even though it seems like America has gone bazooka crazy, God is still in control. God is still in control. Now, the revelation opens up with I'm talking about technicolor dynamic stuff. Because the first thing John sees is the risen Savior. That's the first thing he sees. Uh, He's transported to heaven. And this old, formerly salty old fisherman was given a succession of visions so incredible they boggled the mind of thinkers to this day. God took this fisherman, John, along with Peter and the others, and turned them into intellectual spiritual giants. Seeing things, writing things, revelatory things that to this day... We can't fully understand. First thing he sees is the risen Savior. He sees the risen Savior who looked nothing like the Jesus he had known on earth. No, this is a very different Jesus. He describes him this way. He says, his eyes were like fire. When he looked at you, it burned a hole right through you. Eyes like fire. Hair as white as wool. A voice that sounded like thunder rolling. This is the way he describes it a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, of course, representing the word of God because he was the word of God. And his countenance shone like the summer sun on a hot August, Texas afternoon. I thought that would resonate with you. (laughs) Jesus soon reveals to John that he's got an initial target audience for this revelation. Now, the revelation was good for For centuries to come until Jesus returns and there's a whole new world and the church is no more because we're all in heaven and it's a whole different thing. But up until that moment, uh, the revelation that Jesus gives John, initially, it's for seven churches and he names them. But it's really for all of us because all these seven churches, and I'm going to tell you who they are in just a moment, but these seven churches represent uh, what they were going through, the issues they had are issues that all churches have throughout time. So every one of these churches has something we can learn from. We're going to walk away having grown, understanding what matters to God, what God cares about in his blood-bought church. We're going to learn about it in this series. So he says to John, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Seven churches. And thank God he did write it down because the book of Revelation is the end of our Bible. He wrote it down, and the Bible was closed. Here's the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna. Now, these are locations. There weren't 50 churches in one town. There was one. Man, that would give you some church growth, right? One church. But he says, here's the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He said, I want you to send it. When I'm going to show you the the revelation, I want you to send it to those seven churches. And they were located in what today we would call call modern-day Turkey. They were about a rowboat's journey from Patmos. John could have gotten in a rowboat and rowed to the land where these seven churches were. So in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus sends the equivalent of a love note to each of these seven churches. They're all different. He's got a different message for every one of them. He knows every one of them inside out. He knows what they're struggling with. He knows how Satan has attacked them. He knows their spiritual temperature. He knows where they are with him. Are you hot? Are you cold? Are you lukewarm? He knows the battles they've come up against. He knows the cities they're in and what those cities are are bringing against them, conflict-wise. He knows all about them, their temptations, their weaknesses, their strengths. Matter of fact, he starts out his address to every one of these churches with, I know, I know, I know your works. I know what you're dealing with. I know your compromises. I know your strengths. I know where you're excelling. I know. And let me tell you, every one of us individually today, Jesus knows what we're facing. He knows where you are. He knows the temptations that have come against you. He knows how the enemy is attacking you and your family. He knows your weaknesses and he knows your strengths. He knows your failures. He knows your successes. He knows. Everybody say, he knows. Uh, Jesus looks at the church corporately, collectively, and he looks at the individuals in the church, and he knows. We never tell him anything he doesn't know. We say, Lord, I just want you to know. You can stop right there. He already knows. Right? Jesus knows. He knows all about us. He he knows the day we're going to die. He knows the day we were born. He knows how he wired our DNA. We are fearfully and wonderfully fashioned by his hands. He knows. Now, the first church that Jesus addresses is in Ephesus, the church Paul wrote his epistle to. You read the book of Ephesians? That's the first church Jesus addresses in the Revelation. Now, the Ephesian church is sometimes called the lacking church, lacking, L-A-C-K-I-N-G, lacking, and they're lacking something very important that I'm going to touch on in just a moment but they're called the Lacking Church. Now, Paul birthed this church. Uh, He went to Ephesus, and when he got to Ephesus, Paul found out that this, this church and this city, the city where he would build the church, was in the grip of idolatry, really bad idolatry. They were in bondage to a mythical goddess called Diana, Diana was believed to be the mother goddess of the woods and the mother goddess of animals. Now, you got to understand, they really believed this. They believed that there was a mother goddess, this mythical woman, who was the goddess of the woods and of animals. And the idolatry in Ephesus was so strong that a huge, beautiful temple had been built to this mythical goddess called Diana. I mean... Tons of money went into this thing. And it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. They built a temple considered one of the seven wonders of the world to a woman who doesn't exist. Idolatry. They were enslaved to this. The worship of Diana fueled much of the economy of Ephesus. And true to form, when Paul got there, he seized this. And he begins to witness Jesus to everything that moved. And he began to win people to Christ. And quickly the numbers swelled until all of a sudden Paul had a church. And there it was, the church of Ephesus. And so Paul was so successful in Ephesus, he stayed two years teaching and preaching, raising up leadership, laying the foundation of the Christian faith. You read the book of Ephesians. It's so rich. It's so powerful. I love it. I was in it this week. I particularly love chapters 4 and 5. If I can just be honest. Filled with revelation. Filled with great stuff. Can you imagine sitting under the Apostle Paul for two years? Amen. I personally believe he was the greatest Christian to ever live. Uh, Not that I'm comparing. I'm just comparing. But but I think he was probably the greatest Christian to ever live. And so he birthed this church in Ephesus. But here's the deal. Eventually, so many people had turned to Christ and forsaken the worship of Diana that the silversmiths who made the little silver figurines of Diana and sold them all the time and had their income from these things and made their living off these little silver figurines and other paraphernalia that had to do with Diana— they began to notice that their business was dropping because Paul was winning the whole city. Hallelujah. Paul was winning the whole city. And how would you like to win the city of Fort Worth? How would you like to so affect the economy of Fort Worth that liquor stores and all kinds of other things began to shut down because so many people were getting saved and getting spirit-filled and selling out to Christ that there are certain... Things out there making their living, they can't do it anymore because so many people are turning to Christ. So one of them, named Demetrius the silversmith, decided he was going to have to attack Paul. So he stirred up a raging mob, denouncing Paul, denouncing the Christian faith, and praising Diana. And the whole city was in an uproar over what Demetrius caused. It was a riot. Finally, a city figure stepped in and, and quelled the riot, shut it down, and Paul decided it's time for me to move on. And so he took the leadership that he had raised up, set them over the Ephesian church, and he moved down the road. Now, here's something very important. The Ephesian church was birthed around 55 A.D. 55. John wrote the Revelation around 90 to 95 A.D. You got 40 years. This church has existed when Paul, or rather Jesus gives John this revelation and addresses them. When Jesus addresses the Ephesian church, they're about 35 to 40 years old. And something has happened to them that really concerned Jesus. Now as Jesus did with five of the seven churches, he begins his address to them with Positive stuff. All right. Now, keep in mind, folks, whatever Jesus ever says to any of these churches or to you and me, it's always out of love. He never does anything that's not out of love. God is love. God is love. He doesn't just love, but he loves because he is love. And so anything he does towards you and me, anything he says to us, it is out of love. And so what he says to them is out of love. He starts out in verse 2, and he says, I know all the things you do. Boy, I could preach on that. How many of you get a little nervous when I read Jesus saying, I know all the things you do? Santa Claus stole what Jesus does. We say of Santa Claus, he knows if you've been good or bad, so be good. No, 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 no. Santa Claus stole that. Jesus knows all that you do. And he says, "This here comes the compliments. I've seen your hard work, your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles and they are not. You have discovered they are liars. So people that were posing as apostles and they were fake, the Ephesian church discerned them and said, you're not a real apostle, called them liars because they were lying and they dealt with sin. Did you know the church is supposed to address sin? Did you know that? How else are we going to be light if we don't stand up and say, this is sin, this is wrong, this is not right. You need to repent. So they did this. And then you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. So here's their pluses. Hard work, perseverance, intolerance of evil, discernment, and patient suffering without putting up the white flag and walking away and quitting. That's my kind of church. How many of you want to be this way? How many of you want to be this way? Amen. Wouldn't you love for Jesus to say, look at you and say, hey, I see your hard work, perseverance, intolerance of evil. You've got great discernment. You've been patient in suffering and you haven't given up. Wouldn't you love for him to say that about you and me? And turning point church. So at first glance, it looks like they're batting a 1,000. But here it comes. His next words point out a concern. Revelations 2, 4. Nevertheless, when Jesus says, nevertheless, buckle your seatbelt. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Nevertheless, I have one thing I've spotted. When I look down on Ephesus and I look down at the Ephesian church, I see all these positives, but I see something lacking that is huge, that really matters. Because the the primary ingredient of Christianity is not big buildings. It's not a bunch of money. It's not a bunch of stuff, possessions. It's not even theology per se, but the the number one ingredient of Christianity is love. And, And you've left it. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples by how you get along with one another, how you compliment one another. No, by how you love one another. By this, by this one thing, all men will know. Love is the main ingredient of the Christian faith. Not religion, not rules, not regulations, not doing everything right. Because they're doing everything right. But they're doing something, they've lost something, left something very crucial. You've you've left your first love. Notice, they didn't lose it, they left it. They left it. Nevertheless, I have this against you, you left your first love. New Living Translation puts it this way, I have this complaint against you, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. You don't love me or each other like you did at the beginning. You've drifted from it. You've left it. You didn't lose it like you lose a set of car keys. You left it. So can't we see here that you can do a lot of things right and still miss the main thing? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is to love one another. What does that say about the current church world? Are we loving one another? He, He said, you've left your vertical, you've drifted from your vertical love with me, and you've drifted from your horizontal love for one another. You're doing so many things right, but you're missing the main thing. Now, what does first love even mean? You've left your first love it means your original passion for the lord when you got saved remember when you got saved jesus this jesus that jesus the other witnessing to everything that moved in church every time the door is open you didn't go because you should you went because you wanted to right it wasn't a duty it was a delight do you remember come on everybody see we need to let the word of of god search us here because jesus gave this put this in his eternal word. Why did he focus on these seven churches and say to them what he said if he didn't intend for it to speak to us because he knew how long it would be before he returned. So here it is. The love they had toward him and toward each other, they had drifted from. The love that was first ignited in their souls when they got saved. That they had loss. You don't love me or each other like you once did. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote the book to the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, even bragged on them for their love. He says, ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I've not stopped thanking God for you. Notice, uh, strong faith and fervent love were their early strengths. It's what they were known for. They weren't known for the big building, bunch of money, a lot of pizzazz, talent, the singing, none of that. What were they known for? What were they famous for? They were known for their love and their strong faith. So, the very thing that characterized them early on, they lost. In a few decades, 35 to 40 years, they had drifted. Now, remember, Jesus is never going to point something like this out, but in love. See, he wants us healthy. He wants a healthy body. He doesn't want a body with a fever. He doesn't want a body that is anemic. He wants a body that is healthy. So he says, I want to get you back to where you once were. I want to show you that you have drifted from the love that used to characterize you and showed all men that you were my disciples indeed. Now, he never, gives us, he never gives us a problem or points something out, but he doesn't give us a solution. My Jesus is a solution Jesus. My Jesus is an answer Jesus. He never says, boy, you got this really wrong, unless he's going to show us how to make it really right.
0: Does it ever feel like this world is spiraling out of control? Do you ever turn on the news and see something positive? Or is it another natural disaster, destroying homes, families, and communities? In today's word from Pastor Jeff, he illustrated the serenity that comes from letting God be fully in control. You'll always have the urge to solve everything on your own, but you'll never be able to do it without God. Let Him take the wheel and be renewed like never before. We'd love for you to have additional resources. Here's Diane with more.
1: You've been listening to Hardwired with Jeff Wickwire. Would you be interested in helping support this ministry as we further the gospel? All you have to do is go to hardwired.org and click on Donate. For anyone who donates $20 or more in the month of December, we'll send you a 2024 calendar with daily scripture readings. Just go to hardwired.org to donate. Here's Daniel one more time with a sneak peek about the next edition.
0: In your faith journey. Do you make it a point to turn and run from sin? Do you avoid it with every fiber in your being, or do you approach it casually? Next time on Hardwired, Pastor Jeff explains that no matter the circumstances, you need to always kick sin to the curb. When you dwell in the presence of evil, it only serves to let it spread. Even if it seems like not much of a problem or something that society says is okay, you'll further and further go away from God's holiness. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Hardwired with Jeff Wickwire. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting hardwired.org. Join us next time to continue our study in the book of Revelation right here on Hardwired.